Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. We have been uh, in a series called Embracing Exile, and, and today we are bringing that series to a close. Uh, so over the past several weeks, we've been thinking about exile as a metaphor that helps us to narrate where the church uh, finds itself in these days. Uh, but just like any metaphor, this certainly has limitations, uh, but I have certainly found it helpful and I hope that you have too. Uh, during the series, we've been, uh, we've been invited to embrace exile as a time where God works in great ways among his people. Uh, even though exile can be a time uh, of kind of getting into new territory, it can be uncomfortable, it can be a disorienting time. Uh, but largely, as we look at the narrative of Scripture, exile is a time where God works powerfully and uniquely in his people. Uh, we also talked about if we're going to learn to live as kind of resident aliens, as God's unique people in this time and place, uh, we're going to need a story to root ourselves in. And so we talked about the importance of rooting ourselves in the Christian story uh, and how there's a set of practices that can help us do that, that can help root our lives uh, in the story of God and to help form us as God's holy and unique people. Uh, we also discovered that we are blessed in order to be a blessing to the world, that we are called out and then filled with the Spirit of God and then uh, called to be a blessing. And then last week we talked about the importance of, of kind of doing all of this and working all of this out in front of our kids, uh, that, there's a, there's, it's, that that's a critically important piece that they might grow up uh, following God and being Christian. Today what I want to do is I want to close the series by exploring the idea uh, in broader terms of evangelism. Uh, that is to say that exile can be used by God not just to get our internal life together, uh, get our story straight, get our practices put together, uh, but that God can use exile so that those who come into contact with exiles can also be blessed, yes, even transformed as well. Uh, that is to say that God's purposes in exile aren't just internal, uh, but they, He is forming us and shaping us for the purpose of then sending us out. Uh, and so we want to focus on that in the final week of this, this message in this series. Uh, to do that, I want to look at Isaiah, just a short passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verses 5 and 6, which says this. Uh, and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says... It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. For I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. I want to read the last part of verse 6 again. I will make you a light to the Gentiles so that you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, my central premise this morning is that in, in a time of exile, I believe it is also a time where we need new imaginations for how we envision our mission in the world. Um, sometimes, well, let me tell you this. Uh, in, in southwestern Kansas, where I grew up, uh, there are three seasons every year. Uh, there's fall, uh, there's winter, and there's tornado season. 
Uh, that's just how it is. Uh, if you've ever been to the Midwest, if you've lived in the Midwest, you know this to be true. Uh, and so some of my earliest memories uh, as a child or from childhood are sitting at the dinner table uh, when the tornado sirens go off, uh, which was just like, like in Kansas, this is called Tuesday, right? I mean, it's just like all the time, uh, all the time. And we had a regular routine as a family. Of course, when the sirens go off, it's kind of gone past a tornado watch and into the territory of tornado warning. Uh, what I've learned kind of moving outside of the Midwest is people don't know the difference between a tornado watch and a tornado warning. Uh, people, when, you know, like there's a tornado on the ground and people are like, there's a tornado watch. You know, I'm like, no, it's a warning, you know. Uh, so it, it's really funny. Uh, but so like, so let me, let me tell you, actually, let me just kind of public service announcement. A watch is when conditions are just right for a tornado, but nothing is happening yet. A warning is when a funnel cloud has been spotted in your area, okay? And that's what, so there you go. That, 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 that's, that's, that's all for free. That's not in the scriptures. Uh, that's just from my Midwestern experience. Um, and and here's, what, here's what would happen. We had a regular routine. When the sirens went off, that meant that there was a funnel uh, somewhere near us. And our regular routine was we would get up. You've got to remember this is the 80s, right? So we would, we would get up. Uh, we would grab a flashlight and, and a battery-powered radio. Uh, and other essential items, and then we would uh, go to the basement uh, to wait the storm out. And what we, you know, like now, you just kind of get out your phone and you watch and you can, all that. But we just had to listen to the radio and say the tornado, and the, like the radio was telling us where the tornado was and battery-powered radio, the whole bit. Uh, so that's what we do. That was our regular routine. Now, let me give you a little side note. My brothers got to the point where they had, like, an, another routine, which was, uh, grab the flashlight, radio, then go outside and look. Okay, so this is something I never did um, because I was always the safety police. Uh, when I was in grade school, I had glasses that were blue and they were about this big, just in case my cheekbones needed to see. Uh, and, and so I, I have lovingly referred to them as my blue blockers. And so I would like push my blue blockers up and I'd be like, guys, we need to get down to the basement right now. The sirens are going off. Uh, and if you all don't go, then I'm going to go down there by myself. And literally, as a child, there's like sirens are going off. The family is eating dinner. The brothers are outside looking. And I'm in the basement by myself with a flashlight and a battery-powered radio. Like, this is totally, this is totally who I am. So, so, so anyway, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, the temptation is sometimes for the church to go through exile uh, sitting in the basement, waiting for the storm to pass. Uh, the, the sometimes when we kind of get the feelings of displacement, things start to get uncomfortable, uh, we kind of want to just hunker down uh, as though we're sitting out a, a tornado in the Midwest. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to kind of focus in on, on verse 6. It says, It is too small of a thing. For you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring those back those from Israel that I have kept. That this is, this is too small of a thing. Simply to just kind of be returned back or, or for exile to end, that's too small of a thing. But the calling is that we would go on and then be a light to the Gentiles. And so today I want to explore what evangelism looks like in the midst of exile. Uh, and again, I want to say my central premise is that there's a new approach that is needed. Uh, growing up and even into my early years in ministry, my evangelistic imagination was actually very quite small. Uh, so my evangelistic imagination really boiled down to one of two approaches. Uh, the first approach was the apologetic uh, approach. 
Uh, that is, that personal evangelism happened uh, when I could convince someone that they believed the wrong thing and that I believed the right thing. Uh, and certainly there was more heart to that. Uh, there was more nuance than that. But largely that's what it boiled down to was I w- was a successful evangelist as long as I could get you to believe the th- same things that I believed. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that this approach is somewhat valuable. There is some value to that. Uh, but that was kind of my evangelistic imagination was only the apologetic approach. Uh, The other approach that is kind of like played out corporately in the church is what scholars have come to call the revivalism approach. Now, revivalism has has deeply shaped the denomination of which we are a part, the Church of the Nazarene. And so it it isn't all bad, right? Uh, There has been and continues to be much in my life and much in our lives that needs the Spirit's reviving. However, in a post-Christian culture, uh, revivalism largely becomes a failed evangelistic strategy because it assumes that there is a pilot flame in people's hearts that needs to be rekindled. Uh, And and I think that used to be true, right? We kind of used to live in a world where we could assume some biblical knowledge. We could assume that pretty much everyone grew up in some kind of of home or that had a religious expression. And so uh, maybe that kind of went away and it just, we, just, we just needed to rekindle that. And so a lot of our folk evangelistic focus was, was based on just reviving that, that pilot flame that was still burning uh, from someone's childhood. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore in a post-Christian culture, that, that it's n- maybe not safe to assume that people have uh, that kind of religious upbringing or that, that kind of baseline biblical knowledge uh, that we just kind of need to revive. Uh, but trying to respond or, or trying to figure out how to do ministry in a sort of revivalistic uh, approach, the, the church began to uh, take an approach to evangelism that was, uh, to quote the famous movie, if you build it, they will come, right? Uh, and, and maybe you have seen this to be the case, but we, the church, uh, kind of trying to live into or figure out or, or work out what it means to be evangelistic, uh, have often taken approach of, if you build it, they will come, uh, which means we've spent a lot of time and energy making our music flawless, uh, making our sermons perfectly polished, uh, making our children's ministry more entertaining and our youth ministry more exciting. Uh, and the problem is this, is that for churches that are able to attain all of this, it works. The problem is it works in that it works mostly to shuffle discontented Christians from one place to another. And that it has made us nearly perfect consumers of the goods of Jesus. Now again, I don't want you to hear me wrong. We do need the Spirit of God to continually revive our hearts, but I don't think that we can assume that revivalism is an effective way of fulfilling our mission in the world. So let me suggest two images uh, that a church in exile could adopt for helping us kind of rethink our approach to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and to be a light to the Gentiles so that salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. The first image that I want to suggest is the image of the embodied word, the embodied word. Um, Eugene Peterson was a pastor for many decades, has retired, his health is, is now failing, and 
uh, when he passes away, the church will lose a great saint. But Eugene Peterson uh, wrote this, this Bible, this paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, he paraphrases, he paraphrases it this way. He says, the word, that is Christ, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And I love that. I love that because in its, most, in its simplest, most basic form, this is the call of Christians. That we are to model Christ who left his lofty position and then moved into the neighborhood. And one of the good things that has come out of modern Christianity in the West is the realization of how we think uh, and how we believe is in fact important and it matters. One of the dangers, however, and I think this is maybe where we're at today, is that by placing too much emphasis on belief and doctrine can lead us to alienate those who don't believe like we do or don't have the same views or ideas or opinions as we do. And so we alienate people both inside and outside of the church based on, well, you don't see the world as I see the world. And so placing such a large emphasis on personal belief has brought us to the point where it feels like it's a personal attack when someone doesn't believe like me. And what it has done is it has harmed our ability to be in theological conversation with one another and really just trying to figure out and to wrestle what does it mean to be Christian in today's world. The other danger, I think, is, is we can make proper belief and we can make right doctrine the whole of our faith so that we can come to the conclusion that what it means to be faithful is to believe the right things, um, which we often define as believing like I do. And I would want to suggest that maybe when we, again, over, it's not that belief or doctrine isn't important, but when we overemphasize that and make that the whole of our faith, then I think we run the risk of failing to embody the way of Jesus in the world because we're too busy telling the world how and what to think. In his book, Embracing Exile, upon which this series is largely based, author Scott Daniels tells the story of going to a U2 concert. And while he and his friends were walking to the concert, um, they ran into what he calls the Bullhorn Brigade. And the many members of the Bullhorn Brigade, brigade <laughs> that's a tongue twister, it, hard for me, maybe not that hard for you. Um, but uh, he, there was one of these members that was preaching and I'll put that in air quotes, uh, preaching to the concert goers. And one of the preachers yells into the bullhorn, you are all going to hell because all that you love is drug, sex, and rock and roll. Uh, to which the crowd said, woohoo, <laughs> right? Uh... Now, of course, the point of telling the story was to point out that yelling at the world in judgment for poor morality or improper belief doesn't work. I'd like for us to think about today what it would mean for the church to not just have a word, but to be the word. What would it mean for the church to not just have a word, but to be a word? 
We are, in fact, through Scripture, throughout Scripture, called the body of Christ. Uh, Which is to say that when Jesus left his lofty position and moved into the neighborhood, but then was ascended into heaven, he gathered around himself uh, uh, some believers, the faithful, that would call, call upon him and place their trust in him, but then they were to go about the work of continuing the incarnation, right? Of continuing the presence of God in the world as the body of Christ. And so I think it's just a really compelling and important question for us to consider. What would it look like for us to not just have a word, but to be a word? In fact, one of the biggest indictments against the church has been people looking at Jesus and then looking at the church and not seeing any similarity. People reading the Gospels and then reading, if you will, the church and not seeing very many common themes. It struck me this week that the church uh, might have what I'm calling a butt problem. (laughs) I know that sounds silly, so let me explain. (laughs) How, How many times do we say, you know, we are called to love, but... We're called to forgiveness, but we are called to be peacemakers, but we are called to care for the poor, but we are called to let our yes be yes and our no be no, but, right? So many times when we take the message, the embodiment of the way of Jesus, how tempted are we to add a but? And this morning, I would dream of a church body, both this one and the church, the larger church body. I dream of a church body that dares to love unconditionally, that is courageous enough to live as peacemakers, is committed to forgiveness and reconciliation, is bold enough to love justice and would be a community of those who pursue holiness and seek first the kingdom of God. In short, I dream of a church that would be an embodied word in the world. Because there's a certain draw to an embodied word That Jesus is, whether you believe or don't believe, Jesus is the central figure of history. That the way in which we mark time is literally on this man's life. There is before Christ, and there is Anno Domini, which is literally means the year of our Lord, A.D. That everything sort of after the life of Jesus is the year of our Lord, which is a way of saying that the broader culture has recognized that there is a new Lord in town. And so I I think there's, there's something compelling about the figure of Jesus. So when we think about evangelism, I think a far better approach for a church in exile is to be compelling by the way in which we live again. And that's not to say that belief or doctrine is unimportant. It is important. But man, if all you have is belief and doctrine and the bullhorn brigade, then 
and you don't have the embodiment of Jesus Christ, then we miss it. And the church no longer becomes compelling. Are you with me? So the first image is that of an embodied word. The second image is that of a table. You know, one of the things the Enlightenment gave us was an awareness of individual rights and freedoms. And, and I would say that one of the greatest gifts of the evangelical tradition is the awareness and call to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is tremendous value in that. However, I'm also convinced that the pendulum has swung too far and now we're in, the, uh, in a culture of rugged individualism. And I think, a, I think this rugged individualism has largely robbed us of a collective identity of what it means to be the people of God. Now, for those of you who aren't uh, in the industry uh, of church growth, then let me give you a little window uh, into the kinds of articles that are, are handed out to pastors. Uh, the, there's a church growth movement that began in the 1970s, uh, has largely taken off in the last 25 years, uh, that invites leaders to be aware of uh, what the industry calls homogenous units. Um, so, so here's the idea. Uh, people naturally want to be with people that are like themselves. And so church growth experts say uh, the way to sort of organize and facilitate ministry is encourage churches to figure out uh, who they are uh, and then market themselves to people who fit those same categories. Uh, so if you want to grow a church, solidify your identity as a church and then market yourself to people who fit the same categories as you do. Now, most often this is a reflection of the, the senior leader, whoever that may be, right? Um, and, and here's the thing, it works. Like the, I, the, the principle of homogenous units works. So if you want to be a church uh, of hipster millennials, all you have to do is have a good-looking worship pastor who wears skinny jeans and a really deep V-neck shirt. That's supposed to be funny, right? So like, <laughs> some of you are like, I think he might be serious, right? So it's like supposed to be funny. So, <laughs> so let me try this. Let me try again, right? Let me try again. I'm like trying to make a serious point and then lighten the mood, right? Okay, so, so if you want to have a church of hipster millennials, have a good-looking worship pastor who wears skinny jeans and really deep V-necks. Uh, if you want to have a thriving college ministry, that there's like some very simple rules to follow. Always have free food and only talk about three things. The three things you're supposed to talk about are the end times, sex, and will there be sex in the end times. The, and if you do that, you're going to have a really successful college ministry. That's the deal. Free food and then those three things, right? The, the, the point is, is it's really not that hard to get a homogenous unit together. People who are kind of all the same, um, who reflect a particular image. Um, again, author Scott Daniels says this, and this is a quote. What demands the spirit of God and requires the broken body and shed blood is for people from different generations, different ethnicities, different cultures, different tastes, different political perspectives, different social standing to gather around the table of the Lord and become one body. 
That requires the truly Pentecostal work of the Spirit. And that is the community of witness that a divided and fractured world needs to behold and invited to enter. Listen, homogenization might be great for milk, but it isn't great for the body of Christ. You can tweet that. You have my permission. (laughs) You see, the way to be a light to the world is for the world to look upon the church and wonder, how in the world did that group of people get together? And there is no better place where this is both lived out and illustrated than the table of the Lord the table of communion, the Eucharist. The table of the Lord is a place where we are united despite our differences, for we gather at the table each week with the confession on our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is a place where we come to take in the broken body and shed blood so that by the grace and the mercy of God, we may become the body of Christ that is given for the sake of the world. That there is, there is inherently the Spirit of God is active at his table. And you've heard me say it over and over again that communion is not just a snack in church. And I say it over and over and over again because it's true. That, that the Spirit of God is active as we come to the table in unity with the confession on our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord that we can hold all sorts of different views and opinions uh, regarding all kinds of things going on in the culture, but we can come together in unity despite our differences, confessing Christ as Lord. So to me, there is actually no better image of the body of Christ than a table. For while the world creates divisions, we find reasons to unite. And while the world spews hate, we encourage one another on the grounds, or we engage with one another on the grounds of respect, kindness, and love. You might think of it this way. While the world builds fences, the body of Christ builds tables. And I want to be a church this local church, but I also want to see the church, the global church, build more tables and far less fences. Author and speaker Jonathan Martin recently said this. He said, the table of the Lord is not my table. The table of the Lord is not your table. Yes, we are invited, but we are not in charge of the guest list. (laughs) And so this morning... To come to the table is to say, I am hungry for God. I am thirsty for mercy. I am in need of forgiveness. To come to the table is to say, I am hungry for justice. And I'm thirsty for purity. But here's the thing about the Lord's table. This is not a drive-through table. There There is no getting Jesus in a brown bag and taking him home. To come to the table is an invitation to join a family of exiles and learn together what it means to be Christians in today's world. You see, one of the things that 
The hunker down mentality, the way, sometime, the way some people have responded to that is to say, I'll just take my Jesus and go. And they kind of want this drive-through mentality. The church, the relationships in the church, those things can all get really messy and they're right. But over and over and over again, the, the, what scripture points us to is the reality of coming together and sitting around a table with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are designed to practice our faith, to be in, in, in theological conversation with one another. That's the way it works. And so it's not a drive-through, but rather an invitation to come and lean into what it means to be Christian. There were two phrases this week as I was studying that utterly captured my imagination. I didn't write them, I just came across them, but I want them to kind of end our time. The two phrases, one of them I've already given to you, what would it mean for us to not just have a word, but to be a word? And the second is this. The church is not a place you go. It is a people we are becoming. The church is not a place that you simply just go. The church is a people we are becoming. And I find that utterly striking. Because I want to be, for myself, a person who embodies the Word in the world. I want to be, for myself, a little kingdom presence wherever I go. But more than that, I want to lead a body of people committed to walking in the ways of Jesus. Who, as I said earlier, would be, would, would dare to love unconditionally, would be courageous enough to be peacemakers, that would be committed to the ways of forgiveness and reconciliation, would be bold enough to love justice, and who would pursue holiness and seek first the kingdom of God. I desire that for myself, but I desire that for our church as well. And so I, I close this series on embracing exile, and, I, and I've said it multiple times throughout the series, this may have varying degrees of resonance with you as we kind of look at this metaphor, but I want to close this series by encouraging us maybe as the beginning of a conversation, to wrestle with what does it mean to not just have a word, but to be a word. And to explore the reality that church is not just a place you go, it is a people we are becoming. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, today we find ourselves... encouraged, but also challenged.
challenged, God, by these realities of these, these pictures, these images of an embodied word in the table. And so, God, my, my prayer, I suppose, is that as we gather around the table today, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. We come in unity, despite our differences, confessing you as Lord, confessing Christ as Savior, but also, God, we come with open hands, open hearts, that you would form us into your people, that we may bear your likeness in the world, that we may shine your light into culture, and that we may shine your light to one another, that we may see Christ in each other. So God, in all of these things, we need your help, we need your guidance, we need your discernment. So be with us today as we come hungry and thirsty to the table. May you meet us there. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.